listening to The Dietitian Cafe, brought to you by New Outra, where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. My name's Harriet Smith, and I'm a registered dietitian and founder of HRS Communications. This month, to mark Learning Disability Awareness Week, we're going to be discussing the harsh reality of healthcare inequalities, as too often people with learning disabilities die prematurely for preventable reasons. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by professional head of dietetics and previous lead dietitian in learning disabilities, Angela Norris. So Angela, I'm gonna hand over to you to tell us a bit more about yourself. Thanks, Harriet. Yeah, my name is Angela Norris and I'm the professional head of dietetics at Tees Esk and Weir Valley's NHS Trust. So it's a bit of a mouthful, so we abbreviate it to CHUV. And we're a mental health, learning disability and autism trust up in the Northeast of England. I qualified as a dietitian in 2006 and I've worked for two for 11 years working in mental health services for older people, adult mental health and learning disabilities. Thanks Angela and it's great to have you with us today. In this episode I'm going to be chatting to Angela about her motivations to become a dietitian specialising in learning disabilities, more about what the role entails and hear about the different types of patients that she works with. We're also going to talk about whether there's a shortage of dietitians in this area and in particular a topic I know Angela is very passionate about, where are all the dietitians in the northeast? And finally we're going to talk about what still needs to be done to ensure that people with learning disabilities are not forgotten within the healthcare system. But before we get onto those topics we're going to dive straight into our quick fire questions. This is an opportunity for us to really get to know Angela on a more personal non-dietetic level. So Angela, first question to kick things off, um, who inspires you in the nutrition field and why? Yeah, I guess I would say Jo Smith, who was the previous professional head of dietetics. She was the first person to give me my, my big break, so to speak, within Tube. And I can always remember when I, I first ever seen an advert for a job in Tube and I spoke to Jo and she was just so so down to earth and uh, knowledgeable. And I just thought, yeah, this this is where I want to be working. Uh, and Jo, as I say, she's, she's previously worked in um, learning disabilities as well. So she's always been really passionate and she's always just um, supported me and uh, give me the confidence to move on to the next level, really, in my, in my career. So I thank her for that. She's always had a belief in me, let's just say. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. And obviously you followed in her footsteps because you were recently promoted to professional head of dietetics. So big congratulations on that achievement as well. Thank you. So second question, do you have a favourite genre of music? You know what? I'm really into my music, so I wouldn't say that I have a favourite genre, but there isn't a day goes by when I don't listen to music. So I like everything from like guitar based music to dance music, older things, new things. So I couldn't say one specific genre, but yeah, I couldn't live without my music. Difficult to pick one. That's always a yeah. hard question. And finally, when did you last go on holiday and where did you go? Well, it's been a bit of a downer with holidays, hasn't it, due to COVID? But um, I was actually supposed to be going to Japan. That was the uh, thing that was on my agenda. I was supposed to be there at Easter time. But um, due to the COVID restrictions, it, it's on hold till till October at the minute. But my last holiday was a mini break down to London at the end of May. I was hoping that Middlesbrough would have got to the playoff finals at Wembley, but so hence we booked a trip to London. But sale of v, we, we didn't even make the playoffs. So I just thought, right, we'll go to London anyway. So yeah, had a fabulous time down there. 
Brilliant. And that was probably in the lead up to all the Jubilee celebrations, I imagine. So, it was, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was lovely. Good atmosphere. So to kick things off with this episode, obviously we're talking about um, people with learning disabilities often being forgotten in healthcare. Before we do that, Angela, I'd love to set the scene by finding out a bit more about what inspired you to become a dietitian in the first instance. Yeah, well, I think I'd have to say, I'd have to say my mum, I think, because when I was... When I was younger and um, growing up in the 80s, um, my mum was all, she was a bit of a um, forerunner in, in things about like nutrition and healthy eating and things like that. So I always had an awareness of it from, from the get go, really. And I remember having, having this book and it had everything in about like vitamins and healthy eating and things like that. And I always used to look through it. Um, so, so, yeah, I'd have to say my mum. And, and did you grow up in the kind of household where, um, you know, food and cooking was a big part of your sort of day-to-day routine, Angela? Um, I wouldn't say per se that, that that's what we did, but I think I took a, I took a big role in um, <laughs> probably a bit, of, a bit of control in regards to what food was bought and helping write the shopping list and things like that and planning the meals from, from probably quite a young age. So I was probably um, destined to do this job, I guess. Absolutely. I, I can definitely relate to that. And in fact, I still love doing the weekly food shop, which my partner thinks is just really weird. Um, and what, where did you, where did you train as a dietitian, Angela? Yeah, well, I did. Um, I started off by doing a nutrition and health sciences degree at Teesside. And then I moved on to do the postgraduate diploma in dietetics at Leeds Metropolitan, as it was then known, but it's known as Leeds Beckett now. Let's talk a bit more about your journey once you graduated and qualified as a dietitian. Did you go straight into learning disabilities or did you go into another role? How did you end up working in the area that you're currently involved with? Yeah, well, good question. So when I first qualified, obviously, because I went to Leeds Uni, I was living in Leeds and then I got a job. um, First role was at Rotherham and I worked as a community dietitian there. And then I took a tiny little career break because I then... (laughs) Shortly after starting my first job, became pregnant. So I um, moved back home to have my little boy. So I moved back to Middlesbrough. And I was always, I think I was just under the assumption that I would easily be able to find a part-time job when I first came back home. Um, and that wasn't the case. Um, and then I hadn't even, it hadn't even ever crossed my mind to work in mental health or LD. And then just one day I seen a job advert when, when jobs were still advertised in newspapers. Um, and I've seen it for the mental health and LD trust in, in the area. It was just something I'd never thought about. And it's just as soon as I seen it, I thought, yeah, this is going to be right up my street. So I rang um, and spoke to Joe Smith, who was the person who I referred to earlier in the interview as being one of my inspirations. And just as soon as I spoke to her about the different things that were on offer within the trust, it was just something I'd never even thought about before. And I thought, yeah, I, I need to I need to get work in there. And then I was working in another job at the time, not dietetic related. And I seen a part-time band five job come up at Tuve. And I can remember being sat at my desk and this job popped up on NHS jobs. And I thought, that's that's the job for me. I've got to get that job. Um, and then <laughs> I was already picturing and my noticing at the job I was at. Um, and then, so that was my um, two and a half days a week as a band five working in older people services. And yeah, I was lucky enough to get the job. And that was how my journey started, really. So 
because uh, I'd had a bit of experience of working in older people, like working with older adults with dementia and things like that. So that was where the journey started. And then as I progressed, I moved into adult mental health and then from there moved on to learning disabilities. That's really interesting to hear. And I'm wondering um, when you first started the role, was it what you envisaged it to be? Because I think a lot of dietitians, perhaps who don't work in this area um, aren't always aware or, or perhaps we have certain ideas of what we think it would be like working in a mental health hospital or in learning disabilities. But was the role what you expected it to be when you first applied versus when you started? That, that's really interesting. I think when I've spoke to other colleagues who work in learning disabilities, and I don't just mean dietitians, I mean nurses, etc. There's not many people who've set out on the career thinking, oh, I really want to work in mental health and learning disabilities, because it's just not something that's part of something that you hear about a lot. But then once people do start working in it, and especially learning disabilities, it's very unusual for people then to move on to something else. People tend to find it so rewarding and so enjoyable that they want to stay working with people with an, an LD. Um, but I think I think with all types of things, I think when I started working older people, because I had some personal experience from through family of dementia, it wasn't... I was... I'd, I'd, I'd had exposure to that type of thing before, so it didn't come to, as a shock to me when I seen some of the clients obviously distressed or some of the issues that they had to deal with. So, but then when I was working with older people and then I was moving over to adult mental health, because that was that felt quite a big jump at the time because I wasn't used to them sort of client group, that sort of client group and then them sorts of diagnosis, I guess. Um, and then the only things that you have as your reference points is things that you've maybe heard in the media, et cetera. Um, and that tends to only ever be bad things, I think is the is the important thing to say. But then when you actually when you actually move into these fields, you realise that the, the people are just the same as as anyone else. Do you know what I mean? And you you get to the point where you don't see, and it's the same with learning disabilities, you don't see the diagnosis in the end. You just see the person for who they are. Um, so I guess it's just a case of you come, you come to things, don't you, with your own preconceptions because that's just how, how humans are, really. Um, so does that answer the question? Yeah, that's really, really interesting what you said. You, you don't see the patient for, you know, the label or the condition that they have. You just see mm -hmm. them as, you know, you and I. Um, mm -hmm. And in terms of the sorts of settings that you, you work in, um, mm -hmm. obviously going back, you know, a few years, um, people perhaps with uh, mental health problems may have been inpatients. Is that mm. changing or are you working in more outpatient settings or is it a mix of both? What does it look like? Um, it, it's The majority of the roles within our trust for sure are, are a mix, tend to be a mix between community and inpatient. And I think probably one thing that relates to the last question you asked as well, when I mentioned about um, things that are portrayed in the media, sometimes I see things on the TV and the very sort of like outdated um, reference point about mental health. You, ne you never see sort of like a positive portrayal of mental, of mental illness, I should say, on the TV. You tend to see that sort of like old school straight jacket institution type situation which I don't think is helpful at all whereas the majority of um, mental health hospitals now I mean certainly speaking from our, our own uh, trust 
there's been a you know up until I suppose really up until the 80s and 90s there were sort of old school institutions and, and hospitals that people could be admitted to and they would be there for a long time whereas now um it's very much a community community based focus for treatment where possible and the actual the average length of staying in inpatient unit is, is it can just be a matter of weeks really where you're just helping people while they're acutely unwell with the view that you would be then moving on to support them in the community um but as i say the, the portrayals in the media i don't think help um and it just helps sort of uh, fuel the misconceptions of what mental health and mental health treatments like at present. Yeah, definitely. I know what you mean. There've been a few um, dramas on Netflix recently, for example, about sort of mental health institutions. And, and like you said, uh, I don't necessarily think that's a real accurate portrayal. Um, yeah. In terms of the, the team that you work alongside as a dietitian specializing in this area, um, I presume it requires very much a multidisciplinary approach. Can you tell us a bit more about the interactions you have with other health professionals? Yeah, well, we're very much MDT focused. Um, so it's working alongside physio, occupational therapy, speech and language therapists. Um, in our um, MDTs, obviously, there's nurses, psychologists, psychiatrists, etc. Um, and it's all just working together to try and get, but the main aim is to try and help people live the best possible lives um, and just supporting them and the carers where we can, really. Um, so it is a very much MDT focused trust yeah which I'm sure a lot of dietitians listening can relate to um and I imagine that that supportive network can be really helpful to you in your role what what do you think about that sort of network for yourself as a professional is it important to you oh 100 I mean it, it's like the, when you're working in the NHS or I guess any big organization every little everybody has the role to play don't they and things are never Things are never black and white, so it might be a case that somebody's being referred for something to do with the diet or the nutrition. But then when you dig a little deeper, there's always other areas that can help support people meet the dietary goals. So it might be, you know, especially when you work in mental health, it could be things to do with the medication or what support networks they've got, what skills they've got, um, you know, any trauma or anything like that that the person's been involved with so that they could you know, get support with. It's never a case of it just being the dietetic input. There's always something else that, yeah, we always try to work holistically. That's yeah, the yeah. Word yeah. So um, we'll come on to looking at the kind of holistic picture in a bit more detail in a moment, Angela. But just before we do, can you tell us a bit more about the types of patients that you tend to work with, with regards to mental health and learning disabilities? Are there specific conditions, for example, that your trust tends to specialise in? Yeah, well, I guess uh, certainly when you're looking at, uh, in our trust, we've got mental health services for older people, adult mental health, learning disabilities, we've got eating disorders, we've got child and adolescent health services, and then we've got securing patient services as well. Each speciality as a number, as a dietetic team working into that speciality. So in, for example, adult mental health, you will be looking at more things like um, psychosis, schizophrenia, um, anxiety, depression, etc. Older people, you would have, that's what we call for, um, functional mental health. So in older people, you'd still have that functional mental health, but you'd also have the organic side, which is your dementia. 
Um, learning disability is one of them where the diagnosing of a learning disability has moved on a lot over the, over the years. And we'd have some people who were maybe older adults who wouldn't have been diagnosed with a learning disability in the past. But what we tend to do is if somebody does need a diagnosis, it's the, the psychologist or psychiatrist use a specific um, assessment tool. And it's people generally with uh, IQ below 70 is classed as having a learning disability. And then you can have mild, moderate, severe or profound and multiple learning disabilities. Um, but in regards to specific conditions, um, one thing that we tend to say is, look at the person, not the diagnosis. So we, we very much try to be a needs-led service as well, rather than just diagnosis-led. But obviously some um, well-known learned disabilities that you'll be aware of is obviously Down syndrome, Prader-Willi, et cetera. But sometimes there's chromosomal um, genetic disorders that, that you know, are, are less common. Um, but sometimes it's, just, it's not really about what the condition is, it's what treatment that person needs and how you can help support them. Yeah, and that's... Then, oh, sorry, in, go ahead. Sorry, and then in the eating disorder service, obviously we've got anorexia nervosa, bulimia, binge eating disorder, and then there's the emerging um, piece of work around ARFID, which is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, which is... Um, well, I wouldn't say it's a relatively new condition, but it's, it's, it's recently been in the diagnostic criteria. So that's a big piece of work. The Di diagnostic criteria manual, I should say. That's a big piece of work that we're doing at the minute. That's really interesting. So quite a mix. And if you're yeah. um, like a new band five dietitian coming into this area, do you tend to rotate around all of these different areas or would you generally find yourself specialising in one particular area, such as eating disorders, for example? Yeah, well, that's a good question because rotational post is something that we've thought of in the past, but at the minute, um, it would be working in a specific team. And what I would say is that when you finish university, you're, you're sort of trained at a basic level across all areas of dietetics and all of your skills are transferable. So basically, if you were wanting to help somebody gain weight, whether they were an older person in with dementia or a younger person with a learning disability, the basic advice is still the same. What you need to do is tailor it to that individual and try and, you know, mm. yeah. take into account everything um, in the clinical picture. So all your dietetic skills are uh, transferable and it's just about tailoring it to the individual really. Um, so there's always going to be little extra things that you need to consider dependent on a person's potentially the diagnosis, the age, the lifestyle. Um, but that would be the same if you were working in, in an acute setting and looking at physical health. Um, and one thing about our trust is we're really good about giving CPD and in-house training. So there's always plenty of support. So even as even as a band five, you would get that support that you need, really. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I remember when I was on my dietetic placement, um, doing some work in the community with adults with learning disabilities. And initially I found it really hard to, um, mm. like you said, you're essentially using the same information that you would with with anyone um, with that same problem or condition. Um, how, how do you kind of tailor the consultation? For example, um, you mentioned working with people with low IQ. So if you're working with them on a weight management um, basis, for example, can you kind of talk us through how you might tailor that advice to be more suited to their needs? 
Yeah, of course. Well, as I say, everybody's different. And, you know, sometimes the IQ doesn't um, indicate what level of engagement you're going to get from the person. But as I say, it's just about going along, meeting the individual, getting a bit of a, a sense of what their level of understanding is. If you're ever unsure, then you can always, this is where the MDT working comes in. So you can always ask your speech and language therapy colleagues to do a communication assessment if one hasn't already been done so that you can ensure that you're going to help the person, that you're going to deliver the information in the most accessible form for that individual. As I say, the advice is going to be the same. So if it's, for example, weight management, we'd still be looking at improving the overall quality of the diet and try to achieve a calorie um, reduction and the daily intake. But you could do things like produce easy read documents or if somebody couldn't read, it's using pictorial documents. Some clients respond really well to group work, so they've got that camaraderie with, with other service users or practical sessions. So some clients respond really well to looking at like food models or looking at food labelling and looking at, say, for example, the traffic light system, the, the red, amber and green on certain foods. Um, but there's some clients, if their learning disability is so severe that they can't really engage in the assessment, it's more about supporting the carers, whether that be family carers or, or, or private carers, so to speak. Um, and it's supporting them to have an understanding of nutrition and what can be done to help that person so it's very much tailoring it to the individual so as I say and, and, it, and in both cases it, it could be a mix of both like because as in my experience personally I don't have anybody with a learning disability who lives on their own so because obviously the clients that we would see because they're already being seen by a, a, a community learning disability nurse they've got that secondary health need really so they tend to always be living either with family or in supported living, et cetera. So there's very few people from my personal experience who have uh, agency over their own food provision. You could argue that people with a really mild learning disability who maybe aren't accessing, main, uh, aren't accessing secondary mental health services are slightly more nutritionally vulnerable because these are the clients who maybe have very little support because the because the learning disability is so mild that they're able to to live independently etc and if they if they haven't got that extra support around them they could be they're even more vulnerable really to, to maybe make unhealthy choices and obviously people with mental health issues and a learning disability have the right to access mainstream services the the same as URI um, but then I suppose it's thinking about the challenges that would bring for that individual as well. That's very interesting. And I just want to touch upon what you said about um, perhaps if the patient doesn't have capacity or is not able to engage in the consultation, you might liaise with their carers, whether that's family or um, carers in the facility that they're living within. Um, I actually have a, a family friend who's an adult with Down syndrome. And this is a conversation I've had with her mum many times, a frustration now that their daughter's not living with them at home. She's living in a supported living environment with carers coming in several times a day to help with meal preparation, to help with buying shopping. And what she's noticed is that her, her daughter has, has put on a huge amount of weight since she's moved into that setting. And she was saying to me how um, helpless and powerless she feels as a mother. So I, I was just wondering in that those kinds of um, scenarios scenarios um how would you engage with the carers what kind of approach would you take to support um someone in that sort of situation 
That's a good question because I, I find a lot of the time then it in the same way that you'd be working with clients to look at behaviour change, a lot of the time it's working with the, the families and the carers about their behaviour change because I think things to do with diet and nutrition, it's it's one of them things that everybody comes to a situation with their own thoughts and ideas anyway. So, for example, the carers will be coming in to support any given individual. They'll have their own thoughts and beliefs about, for want of a better friend, what's healthy, what isn't, or as I quite often hear, which foods are good, which foods are bad, which obviously in dietetics we don't tend to see it like that. So I guess it's it's about offering... it's. A, Assessing the, the, the carer's understanding, really, of what diet and nutrition is um, and providing training for staff if needs be and signposting them in the right direction for certain like apps or tools. I mean, certainly um, we quite often recommend using things like calorie counting apps and things like that for the clients now because, you know, as dietitians, we seem to think it's, it, we know how, how much calories is in certain foods. Do you know what I mean? That's what we do. But for some people, you know, it's not as easy and using things like the tech tools that we've got these days, for want of a better phrase, can be even like the government apps, there's the, the NHS have done, uh, they've got a big obesity drive at the minute and there's even like an NHS calorie counter and things like that. So I quite often encourage staff to use that for a client as well. But but if you feel as if that person, you know, you, you provide the information in the most accessible form that you can, if you do a capacity assessment and the person's deemed not to have capacity to make decisions regarding the diet and the nutrition, then obviously um, you can do a best interest decision with the care staff to say, well, even if a person, for example, is asking for takeaways on a regular basis, but it's being deemed that it, it's not in the best interest to be eating, you know, high calorie foods. For, for example, say if they had diabetes, but they were wanting to eat high calorie snacks all the time, if it was deemed not to be in the best interest, you can write a care plan around that. And I think that supports the staff as well, because one of the, the things that we're passionate about in mental health and learning disabilities is always using the least restrictive practice. So nobody wants to be making decisions for a person because everybody has the right to make an unwise choice. And I think that's one of the things that we're passionate about in mental health and LD. So everyone has the right to make an unwise decision if they've got the capacity to make that decision. I think we've all made decisions over the years that maybe other people wouldn't have thought were, were wise for us. Um, but if we've got the capacity to weigh up the pros and cons and make that decision, that's one thing. But if somebody, for whatever reason, due to their mental health or learning disability, doesn't have that ability, that's when we have a duty of care to support them to get the, the best health, health outcomes that we can, really. That's very interesting um, about doing the capacity assessment um, and, and it coming back to best interests. Really interesting. Um, are there any initiatives that you've come across in the communities that you're working in where they, um, for example, perhaps like cooking sessions um, that, that you have observed as being really useful for working within within these groups of patients with learning disabilities? It's a good question. I mean, with anything like that, it all comes down to funding, doesn't it? And what, what's on in, in every area, I guess. Um, and over the last couple of years, now, because of COVID, there's been a lot of changes. So there might have been certain things that were available um, prior to the pandemic that, that got put on hold, really. Um, but I guess it's just a case of, it, you know, it, I think these types of things are massively underfunded, really. 
Um, so I think there is a lack of community-based projects and initiatives, really, for people with a learning disability to engage in. And obviously, they have a right to access any sort of session that you or I would access, but it's just for the for, for the uh, facilitators to have an awareness that people with a learning disability might just need that little bit more time for people to explain things or uh, uh, might have to explain things a couple of times until the message gets across. So it's about making that reasonable adjustments for people with an LD. Um, but certainly, I don't even think it's just learned disabilities. I think the population as a whole needs support with cooking skills because I think it's one of them things that each generation, the, the skills to, to create their own meals and the healthy diet is, is reducing, really. Um, as we've seen, which is probably resulting in the obesity crisis, that there's there's more of a reliance on eating foods outside the home and takeaways and things. Um, and again, that's just the, the same problem in mental health and LD is what it is nationally, mm. really. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So Angela, for anyone that's listening, that's potentially interested in working in this area, um, is there any additional training that, dietitians would need to do to be able to work in learning disabilities yeah well I think the main thing to know is that the majority of the dietitians who work for our trust have come to the come to the roles with very little experience if any in mental health and learning disabilities as I said earlier in the interview all your dietetic skills are transferable so it's just a case of the, the, you know, there is extra training available, like say, for example, the British Dietetic Association do an uh, introduction to mental health and learning disabilities, and they also do uh, an advanced course this, that's coming out this year. But I think, as I say, it's just about having them transferable dietetic skills, and then it's a case of learning on the job, really. Um, I mean, I know certainly when I was at university, I think we maybe did one lecture on mental health and an LD. Um, we are working with local universities, say, for example, Teesside, which is our local uni, to really embed mental health onto the syllabus, which they've worked really hard at doing that, so that people have more, um, that you know, they're building that knowledge base when they're at uni. And plus also we're taking, I think, mental health trusts are taking on more students now, um, so that they're getting that experience on placement. Um, but what I would say is that the, the most important thing for me, which is what I always tend to write on the job advert, is the most important thing is having that compassion and empathy for people with mental health and LD. We, we can get down to the, nut, the, the nuts and bolts of it when you're working within the trust and you can, you can be taught certain things. What you can't teach someone is to be compassionate and kind and caring. And for me, that's the most important thing. And, you know, ideally, if people have a little bit of an awareness about some of the issues that people with mental health and LD endure, then great. But as I say, it's that compassion and empathy is, is the key for me. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I know you've mentioned um, when we spoke previously, Angela, that you're actually going to have some positions coming up in your trust soon. So yeah. what we what we can do is definitely link to those in the show notes if there's anyone listening who is interested. Um, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Are there any other useful resources um, that you'd recommend for dietitians interested in learning a bit more about this area? We can certainly put those into the show notes. Yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, the BDA has got a good... Um, a 
a good slide or poster about what what's your dietitian thinking about so what what's your and what do you need to know when you're a learning disability dietitian so there's a really helpful visual tool that I'll, I'll share the link for um but if anybody's got any questions or queries they can always get in touch with myself or the local mental health and ld trust and i'm sure the staff there would be more than happy to to uh, answer any queries or people can contact me direct if there's anything that they they would like to ask about and i think it also having a look on the the mencap website is a really good one that covers all areas of mental health really it covers things about best interest it covers things about um capacity assessments and it's got loads of information on there so that's always a good starting point as well Great. Thanks, Angela. We'll definitely link to those in the show notes. Um, just coming back to the recruitment drive that we were talking about, um, you've mentioned before that there's a real shortage of dietitians working in mental health and learning disabilities. Why do you think this is and what can we do to overcome this, um, this problem? Yeah, well, I think, I, I think it probably reverts back to some of the things I've already referred to. So I think, I think it's just lack of exposure to mental health and LD, really. So, as I say, when I was at uni, we only did one lecture on it. Um, so I think it's a case of, I mean, obviously, we're linked to Teesside University, so we've really been able to be proactive of, of, of you know, really building that mental health awareness and training onto the, onto the syllabus there. But obviously, in other areas of the country, you know, we, the dietetic teams might not have them links with the local universities, but... What I would say is that if anyone's listening in different parts of the country to if you feel as if that your local uh, course isn't uh, covering mental health and LD as much as you would like, then try and link in with the, um, the lecturers and the, the course leaders. And, you know, I mean, I know certainly from our team, uh, most of our dietetic um, leads have presented and done lectures at the local university. Um, and I think it's it's you know we work hard to facilitate student placements as well so years ago that wouldn't have been something probably that would have been offered and also certainly when I was doing my training it was very unusual to have a, a community-based placement Our placements were very much hospital-based and I think I was one of the lucky ones to be one of the first to go on a community placement really when I was with South Leeds which was it was one of them where just the day I walked in, I thought, yeah, I'm, this is the place for me. So, um, so yeah, I think it's for, for for teams to link in with the local educational providers, as they to get on the syllabus, but also to facilitate student placements. And I think there's been a reluctance initially. I think, well, you know, are the, are the students getting the same sort of skills that you would get if you're working in an acute hospital? And I guess one thing that I would say is that if you're a student born into a mental health or LD setting, it can sometimes seem that it's maybe a slower pace than if you were on, on a ward and you maybe is not getting, if you're in an acute setting, you may be seeing so many people in a, you know, in a, in a day, you're going to see them at the bedside or whatever. What I would say is that when you're working with someone, mental health and LD, you're working much more holistically because you're seeing people, how things are for them in the real life. You're not just seeing them when they're acutely unwell with some you know physical health condition you're seeing people well yeah you're seeing people in the real lives really and and it's you're having to work that much more holistically to get your interventions in place is what I would say so you can certainly 
get as much out of a mental health placement, if not more really than what you would in a, in a physical health one. So don't let it put you off and don't let anything that you see in the media about mental health and learned disabilities put you off either. And if you do have the opportunity for a, that type of placement and there's anything that you're worried about, I'd get in touch with the local trust and ask if you could go and have a little look around before you start your placement. But yeah, so hopefully the fact that we're taking on board more students and things and you know we're trying to do things like this to really promote diet, uh, mental health and LD dietetics hopefully that'll help with the recruitment drive but to be fair I think the recruitment issue it probably over the last couple of years hasn't just been a mental health and LD one I think it's been it's been a national issue really and I know both um, I know the local acute trusts are struggling as well with recruitment so um Yes, I think it's across the board at the minute, but historically it has been more of a mental health and LD issue, the recruitment, I would say. Yeah, that's that's interesting to hear. I've, I've definitely heard that echoed by dietitians working in other areas as well. Um, just, just to kind of play devil's advocate to that, people who are interested in working in this area of mental health and learning disabilities may be concerned about the impact that it could have on their own mental health. Is that something that you or any of your colleagues have experienced and, and are there sort of support mechanisms in place to help you to overcome that? Yeah, for sure. And I'll be honest, I wouldn't say that working in mental health or LD is any more challenging or stressful than working in the acute setting, really. I mean, especially over the last couple of years, um, we've seen our acute colleagues have to work through some really tough times with the pandemic. Um, but certainly, yeah, we've got a great support network within the dietetic team and in the wider MDT. And I know Personally, um, our trustees, Eskimoia Valleys, the you know the real pushes for making sure it's a great place to work for staff, and they've got a real focus on helping with staff well-being. So I wouldn't say necessarily that it was any more stressful or distressing than than any other role in the NHS. Really, um, it's actually quite a, a, a positive place to work. I would say, and it's such a rewarding. It, it's such a rewarding field to work in, I guess. Um, but then I would say that because I love working in the community and I love working <laughs> in mental health and LD. But um, yeah, I would say from, from my experience, it's, it's no different to working in, in any other field, really. Again, I think it's just more a case of, it, it's what you become used to, isn't it? And I mean, I can remember being on placement at a acute hospital and I found it quite distressing seeing somebody... I actually found it quite distressing. Now, still, in, if I'm going in a acute hospital and see some people so physically unwell, um, whereas if you worked in that hospital, if you worked in that setting, you, you, I don't mean desensitised to it, but you, you see it day in day out, so it wouldn't be as, it, it, it's not as unusual. And I guess it's the same working in mental health and LD. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's a good you, you, question. Yeah, definitely. Um, and like you said, I imagine if anything, that support network and having um, psychiatrists and psychologists available to you is, is really supportive. Yeah. Um, coming on to another topic that I know you're very passionate about, Angela. Um, why aren't there more dietitians working in the Northeast, which is where you're from, of course? Have you got any any thoughts around that? Yeah, I have one or two. I think the main thing is that if somebody isn't from the northeast, I don't think it's the type of place that 
people would think, oh, yeah, I really want to go and live in the northeast. And again, when I've said about things that are shown in the media about mental health and LD, the same things about the northeast of England. And I think it's one of them where it, the way it's portrayed in the media is if it's, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, that, you know, there's there's good and bad places everywhere. And then, the, you know, there's, there is some deprived areas in the northeast, but then there is in, in lots of other parts of the country as well. And I think when people do move to the northeast, they're really surprised about how friendly it is, you know, house prices are a lot cheaper, but then also things like the, the countryside and the coastal areas that we've got. I think people are going to be naturally more attracted to places like London, Manchester, Leeds, etc. But we've got really good transport links as well to them, them places. So what I would say to people is that quite often people move up here from out of the area and then they, they tend to want to stay. So I think that it, the same that I said about mental health and LD. So it's a double whammy. If you move to the northeast and work in mental health and LD, you'll probably be quite happy to stay in both them things, really. Um, but yeah, I think it's just the way it's portrayed in the media, I guess, I would say would be one of my biggest things. But we've got some of the best um, countryside that we've got the North York, Moors National Park. We've got we've got some amazing things just on our doorstep, really. And there's not many places where you could be in the Yorkshire Dales or at a beautiful like beach within like 10, 15 minutes of where you live. So I think we're really lucky. Um so, yeah, but as I say, we're just trying to promote the area as well and just saying for people, just come up and have a look, have a look around and see what you think and then make your decision. Wow, I think it, it sounds like if you move to your trust, you're never going to move back again. It's, uh, it's It ticks all the boxes. <laughs> we don't force you to stay, I promise. We're not taking <laughs> people against the will. <laughs> So Angela, just just coming back to the um, main theme of the episode, um, and as we come towards the end of the episode, I wanted to ask you, what do you most enjoy about your role? I think, I mean, I've loved all my roles within Chuv. I've loved working in adult mental health, older people and LD, but I think I'd say one thing that I've found the most rewarding has been I've absolutely loved working with a profound and multiple learning disability group. So these are some of the most vulnerable members of society, really. And technically, PMLD is classed as somebody with uh, IQ below 20. So these are some of the people who have the most complex physical and mental health needs. And what I've enjoyed most is the fact that regardless of somebody's level of complexity or level of disability or, you know, low IQ, is that no matter what, getting to know that person and getting to know the family and seeing that person, as we say, don't count the chromosomes, see the person and really getting to know that everybody's got their own personality, everyone's got the little quirks, everyone's got the things that they like and they don't like and really getting to know getting to know each client because this PMLD client group that personally that I've worked with, some of them I've worked with them for over three or four years so you, you really get to know these people and you really get to see that little twinkle in their eye and I think no matter what type of day you're having if I go up to one of the day centres where our PMLD clients are based I always come away with such like a lovely warm feeling in my heart especially with the, the level of care that they receive when they're at our day centres as well and just seeing how, um, how amazingly everybody 
how, how much of a pedestal these people have put on and how much we, they doted on, really. And it's just a, a really uh, heartwarming experience. And on that note, Angela, can you tell us about a memorable patient that you've supported over your career? Yeah, I mean, God, the, the, there's been a few, but I think um, certainly amongst the PMLD client group, well, I think across learning disabilities, really, there seems to be an acceptance that people are either going to be underweight or overweight. It just seems, it's what we would call diagnostic overshadowing. People with learning disabilities tend to be underweight or overweight, and there seems to be an acceptance of this as if people with a learning disability have to be that way. So say, for example, somebody with a, a profound and multiple learning disability, where there, be, there might have been an acceptance that this person's BMI is like 13 or 14, and that can be a thing where they're saying, oh, well, actually, they're eating all right, et cetera. And they're not seeing it as a risk that this person is, you know, at risk of malnutrition. And I always think, well, if someone's eating quite well and the BMI is 13 or 14, where do you go when suddenly that person becomes physically unwell or the mental health declines and that they stop accepting diet? You still become in a crisis situation. And some people can have the impression that because someone's always been a low body weight, that they can't gain weight or that's just the way they've got to be but um i worked we've worked there's, there's been a few cases like this to be fair where we've worked alongside families and carers and to support them through the process of somebody um getting a peg fitted so the entral fed entrally fed so um and it can be a real obviously big step for the family emotionally and, and mentally to go through that process but we, we had an individual where um yeah, supported the family through the process. He got the peg fitted. And we as it actually happened, um, the amount of calories that he needed to gain weight was was nearly double what we would have worked out on our calculations. Um, but slowly but surely we, we got him, we got the feed that was just right for him, and he slowly and slowly gained weight. And he, he just looked so well when you see him. And I've kept the email that I was sent a couple of years ago because I'd been concerned about his his low body weight. And I'd been trying to push this forward and I'd got an email off one of the nurses and she just said, oh, I've seen this client today and I was really concerned about him because he, he looked so thin. And I thought that was the day when I thought, right, we, we've got to get this move forward. Um, so as I say, we worked alongside family and, and the MDT to, to really support that process. And um, yeah, and he's absolutely flourishing and thriving now and you know he, he's still able to enjoy tastes of food when, when he wants to because it wasn't particularly you know there was some um, swallowing issues but that wasn't the predominant factor of it it was just the case that we couldn't get enough nutrition in him to be a, a healthier weight I mean you, the, you know there's always going to be the, the query about the, the body weight and the BMI because obviously if someone's a wheelchair user the, the reduced muscle tone etc but we have been able to get him to, to that healthy BMI and um, families say now that they wish they'd done it years ago and that's quite often the case thankfully they, they do tend to say that um, so that was a positive experience but I think with with all my PMLD clients especially because I've worked with them for so long over the last years I'll, I won't forget any of them really like you always remember you always, you always remember little quirks about the person or little things that they enjoy or the little interactions that you have and the positive pieces of work that you do um so yeah and uh, 
just to, to put it out there, we're advertising a band five job at the minute to work with our team. And I've just had the heads up today that we're going to be advertising a band six as well. So, um, yeah, I couldn't say enough nice things about working in mental health and, and LD. And I say, hopefully that's evidenced by the fact that I've, I've worked here for 11 years and, and worked across the trust. And I know that my colleagues and other specialities feel the same as I, as I do, really. Um, so, so, yeah. Yeah, that, that in itself says a lot that you've been there for, for over over 10 years. Um, and what a wonderful story to share to, to wrap up our episode. What's the main message that you would like people listening to take away from your podcast episode today, Angela? The main thing is just that I would say, if you see a job advertised for something to do with mental health and learning disabilities, try and put any preconceived ideas out of your mind because then preconceived ideas are probably similar to what we've all had in, in our trust or anyone working in mental health and LD but until you're working somewhere and you're getting to know that client group don't knock it till you've tried it is probably what I would say and don't lack your own confidence because I mean we've even got people newly qualified band fives working in our eating disorders and dietetic team ways with, with all the fields they're all specialist fields However, like I've said earlier, all your dietetic skills are transferable and there's certain things that you, that you, you know, you learn on the job, really. I suppose I always think of it as when you qualify as a dietitian, it's the same, same as when you do your driving test, isn't it? You're deemed competent at that time. So you pass your driving test, you're deemed competent to be able to drive on the roads. But really, you, you learn over the years, don't you? When you're driving, you're learning all the different skills and you learn your confidence. And it's the same in your career. So that's what I say to students. When you qualify, you just need to be competent. And then when you when you start work, that's when you, you know, you learn from the MDT and you learn from your colleagues. And, you know, there's always supervision, there's in-house training, the BDA, the BDA do loads of different courses and things. Um and you're supported on that journey, really. As I say, it's very unusual for someone to leave mental health and go and work back in, as we would call it, mainstream. Um, it, it is very unusual. So once people start with us, um, it, it's such an interesting field. And then, again, people swap through specialities as well as I've done. So, again, all your skills are transferable. So that's what I would say. And I would say don't listen to sort of the portrayal of things to do with mental health that you see on the telly or in the media uh, as I say you only tend to worry about when things go wrong you don't tend to worry about all the good things that that go on really um and the same for the northeast as well don't you know don't don't go with what the media portrays the northeast of England to be like I think come and have a look at yourself and make your own mind up I guess I guess the message I'm getting from you, Angela, is don't read a book by its cover. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Angela, and for sharing your valuable experience with us. A huge thank you as well to New Outra for making the podcast possible. If you enjoy listening to The Dietitian Cafe, please consider subscribing and leaving a review or a five-star rating so that we can reach even more healthcare professionals. You can follow New Outra on social media at New Outra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear the latest updates on medical nutrition. Thank you for listening and our next episode will be out soon.